Welcome to Best in Show, the podcast that looks at the best episode of each TV series I own in its entirety, based on the voting of IMDb users. Every two weeks, we release a new episode with rotating guest hosts. As we promised five proper episodes back, we've got some returning guests to discuss Deep Space Nine, specifically Season 6, Episode 19, In the Pale Moonlight. So welcome back, Brian and Rob. Thanks for having us back. Yes, thank you very much. It's an exciting one. It is. This is, I mean, we'll get into the meat, but this feels different than most of the other Best of Trek episodes in a number of ways. I think that this is different from most of Trek. This is basically the antithesis of Trek, and that's what's fun about this episode. All right, so just to get into a little bit on the technical details, this specific episode was directed by Victor Lovell. It was written with a teleplay by Michael Taylor, who, as you may recall, came up with a story for the best episode of Voyager. This time he just did the teleplay based on a story by Peter Allen Fields. Now, the series creation credit is officially given to Rick Berman and Michael Piller. Obviously, like any track, Gene Roddenberry deserves to share that credit for creating the original series. I don't want to get too much into details here, but you hear a lot of people saying that it's basically a ripoff of Babylon 5. There is documentation that says that J. Michael Straczynski met with Paramount executives and pitched Babylon 5 to them, and some of the executives in that room then have been confirmed to have been the ones who came to Berman and Pillar and said, how about Star Trek on a space station? Now, it's also been made very clear that those people who were in both rooms do not appear in the credits. So the people who blame Berman and Pillar for stealing Babylon 5, J-Mass is the first one to say, as far as he's concerned, they had no knowledge of that. As a fan of both Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5, I could say, yeah, there are more similarities than just two shows set on space stations that deal with wars, but they took a very, very basic similarity and went a completely different direction with it. So it's, I would say that they're, they're similar, but not as similar as, say, Deep Impact and Armageddon or Volcano and Dante's Peak or a lot of the other Hollywood ideas where they are basically taking, you know, the same concept and developing it into two different studios there. there. There's a lot to love about both series for very different reasons. And we often talk about the regular cast. At this point, we've got a lot of our season our series regulars. So our Dax is still Jedzia. So this is her final season. But from there, we've got Avery Brooks as Ben Sisko. Morph has joined the crew. We still have Colomini as Miles O'Brien. Sidigo Fadil is now Alexander Siddig in the credits, playing Julian Bashir. The regular cast is here. You know, Adnan Visitor is Kira Norris. But ultimately, this episode has Ben Sisko first and foremost, with Andrew Robinson's Garrick as a very close second player. And the other major crew members are really incidental. And the basic premise is that the Federation is at war with the Dominion, and they realize that the only way they can really expect things to turn out well for them is if they bring the Romulans into the conflict. And Sisko recruits Garrick to help accomplish those goals. And the road to hell is paved with good intentions. 
Mm-hmm. It's framed with a story where Cisco is dictating to his personal log. And as he gets further and further down the rabbit hole and moves further and further away from the Starfleet ideals, you see he state, starts taking his uniform off a piece at a time until in the final scene, the jacket is off and the collar is open wide enough that his pips are no longer visible. And he's kind of distanced himself from Starfleet as he realizes that, yeah, we crossed a lot of lines that Starfleet doesn't cross, but I think I can live with that. But I think the the beauty of that and, and, and the visual that you've described is one of those things that is so true. And it's a it's a penny that drops with people when you when you describe it that way. You kind of think back and go, God, that was staring me in the face. And it does have that subconscious impact. But I think I would partially disagree with with how far away he gets from Starfleet uh, or at least its ideals, because I think what this does, especially as it's a captain's log, um, is it, is it shows you another side of Starfleet, the reality. You know, it, it's the Federation, it's beautiful, it's peaceful, it's fantastic, everybody's happy. Um, and yeah, okay, you've got the extremities like Section 31 and where they fit into the grand plan and how poorly that was executed in Deep Space Nine. Um, but in here, we see what something like the Federation, something like Starfleet is willing to do and sign off on. And that's a big part of this story is that everything he is doing, he has full permission to do. He clears the whole thing from end to end. And and it's all signed off. It's all above board to, you know, to the degree of being mm-hmm. given permission. And he's doing this log, which is a very Star Trek thing for us to see. And then right at the end, when he deletes it, you've got that beautiful moment of, this is behind the curtain. This is this is the Star Trek that we've never seen before. This is the stuff that happens off camera. You know, the Federation is beautiful and it's powerful and it's had Kirk and it's had Picard. But here is something that had we not had this episode, we would never have known. And that's what I love is that it is that, like I said, it's that behind the curtain Star Trek. It's a different look at what the reality of the Federation is. Yeah, it's it, and it's interesting you bring up Section Thirty One. The, the the episode previous to this one was Section Thirty One's introduction, um, so we just learned about it, and it it is it's it's this darker side of how do we how do you make paradise? Paradise doesn't come free. Uh, how do we make it? And and you like I said, it's it's really about. Cisco literally burying his soul. Um, this is, I think there's one other episode that's kind of done in similar format. One of the enterprise episodes, uh, dear doctor, um, where he's narrating a log, but net it, it's never quite like this. Cause most of Cisco's, uh, narration is done looking straight at the camera. It's the closest thing Star Trek ever gets to a fourth wall break. Um, he's literally talking to the audience, um, confessing. Uh, this is his confession. Um, and, you know, he, he sits there, you know, and, and he's trying to work it out himself. And um, it, 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 it sets up the episode with a great amount of tension because all of a sudden it's like it starts off with he can't even remember what the date is. That's how befuddled he is, how emotionally wrought he is. He actually has to ask the computer what the date is. Um, and then he's, he starts to get into this and clearly from the get go, we're like, Oh, something bad has happened. Um, and, and sometimes it's a cheap, uh, you know, story trick, but in this, it's very personal. It's very much, 
uh, we're watching the, the, the captain, uh, you know, come not unhinged, but he's starting to come apart. He's, he's clearly upset. Um, I don't know if he starts drinking at the beginning of the episode or if he's, the, the, the booze shows up midway, but, um, you know, we, we see him with the, with a bottle and a glass. I mean, it's very much, uh, the, the, you know, we, we raise the, especially the captains to these almost, uh, godlike levels, uh, in Star Trek. And he's very much brought low. He's very much a mortal man. Um, you know, talking about his father, talking about, you know, it's obvious that, you know, he's, he's upset with himself. He's disappointed in himself. But, uh, so we really want to hear what's going on. What, what, what is, what has he really done that's so bad? <laughs> um, and yeah. just just to expand on the the alcohol with when he's drinking, the bottles in the background the first time we see him, and we see him carrying an empty glass, carrying the <clears> bottle. There's another scene where he pours it, and there's actually the next log entry. He picks up the glass but doesn't drink a couple of times. Yeah, and and the way they use it too, because as you say, it's 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 subtle. It it works its way in. You know, it it's what it's like the uniform thing. If you think about the episode almost backwards, there are things that you you remember, like the glass. But then it's that whole when the hell did that appear? Because you're so engrossed in it. But that beautiful moment where he stands up and he raises the glass and he says, you know, there's a there's a welcome to the war uh, celebration in, in the wardroom, and it, it's it's so well. And it, it's not used as a prop so to speak but it really it just helps sell that little image more because he's got that glass on hand when he does it and it's it's perfect mm-hmm. yeah this is on a production and direction standpoint i would say this is one of the best episodes of trek not just deep space nine yeah but the entire franchise and budget wise they must have done so well because they didn't oh, yeah. need too much in the way of special effects no, it's it's a total bottle episode. Um, it it all takes place on DS9, um, using the existing sets. They don't leave the station at all. Everything comes to them. Everything is is very simple. Uh, you know, it's it really is. Um, and, and you were talking about the the, the regular cast. I I don't think I know Colmini uh, O'Brien is not. He doesn't appear in it, and neither does um, Kara. Uh, I don't think either of them even show up in the episode, um, which was normal. Cole Meany would go dis- he'd go missing for uh, several episodes at a time because he wanted to keep uh, acting in movies. Um, and they they made those allowances for him when he when he joined the show. But I don't think yeah, I don't think Kira's even in this one. Uh, but there's some great, great bits of scenes with, with him and, and Dax where Dax plays devil's advocate. Oh, God, um, yeah. Dax's performance of that Romulan is it's it's one of the most memorable of, of the of the cameos if you want to call them that of the main cast yeah that one really stands out yeah and, and they do feel like cameos right you've got that meeting with Dax yep and Odo and Bashir their main scenes seem to be there just to say this is not a line you should be crossing yeah but Quarks is golden though but but please Brian go back yeah. to the Dax stuff because it's yeah the, yeah. The, yeah the Dax and 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 now that I'm thinking about it, there there are no I don't think there's any scenes in this episode that don't have Cisco in them um I, I think we've pretty much locked into his POV um literally I mean both the narration I don't think there's a single scene we don't see anything uh, there's a lot of stuff that's alluded to outside of of it, but yeah, the Dax and and Cisco, Cisco's trying to make the case for Romulans to uh, 
uh, for Romulus to join uh, the war effort. And Dax does this magnificent job of playing a Romulan senator, of just shooting down every argument Cisco puts up. Um, and it, it's a testament to their friendship that Cisco is, he gets frustrated, but he doesn't get mad at, at Dax. No, no, he gets, he gets, he gets frustrated with her in character and it's, it, it, it's such a brief scene and it's so well done. And, you know, it's played perfectly by both of them, but immediately as you watch that and, and you could have jumped into Deep Space Nine in this episode and, and have never watched it before. And just watching that brief rapport, you could immediately have gone. These two people have worked together for a long time, and this is not the first time they've role-played a conversation to see what the outcome would be. Mm -hmm. It immediately gives you that impression. That is not the first time that Dax and Cisco have gone, how do you think this is going to turn out? And she plays somebody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just sits there and and pokes holes in it, and and it's fantastic because it – it sets up it sets up the the you know the Herculean effort that's going to be involved in in bringing the Romulans over because this isn't you're not dealing with the Klingons where the Klingons you can you can get them to do anything you want just by poking them the right way yeah. um, you know they get angry they get pissed off um, you know they they have egos and and honor and all that Romulans don't do that um, and and they're a fantastic adversary. Uh, that, that that's really underused, I think, throughout the series. But they are a fantastic adversary because they don't do things. They are they are related to Vulcans. They are incredibly intelligent. Um, they they do have some of that logic. Um, you know, their brains work a little faster than than the average human. So they do tend to, you know, they're going to poke holes. They're going to be able to find the way around. They they're not thinking three moves ahead. They're thinking ten moves ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're we're setting that up. Um, and so you get that. And then, you know, the, the, it requires that Cisco go seek the help of Garrick. Um, yeah. Who, who himself is, is a 10 move kind of player. And, and that's exactly as you describe it. The only way that he wins all of this mm-hmm. is to recruit somebody who is just as untrustworthy as the Romulans, because there isn't any way that Cisco would have thought that far ahead. He, the Federation just don't play that game. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's it's even Garrick who says, "Yeah, you got what you wanted, and that's why you came to me. I'm the one that got the Romans in the war by doing what you wouldn't do, and all it cost was the lives of one Romulan senator, one criminal, and the self-respect of one Starfleet officer. That's a bargain." Yeah. The, the three again, if we want to call them cameos, that stand out in my mind because yes, okay, Odo is in it, and and Julian's in it you know, being an uptight doctor and going, oh, this isn't a very good thing you're doing. I'm going to write this down. But the mm-hmm. three ones that stand out are brilliant for Deep Space Nine characters. Um, and it shows you that it's not just a Federation starship, a uh, starbase. Um, because Dax, you get that friendship, you get her intelligence, you get her age, you get her experience. Wonderful. Quark is so, he's so Quark in that exactly. one scene. And he's so Ferengi in that scene as well, mm-hmm. um, which is beautiful. But also, Garak, that that bit of the, I mean, all of Garak's line, the passion behind everything he says in the episode just makes it memorable. But that final conversation where he explains it to him, especially when Cisco, to be fair, beats the crap out of him um, for for pulling off a good job. Mm hmm. Where he says, you know, oh, but I don't think that they will. And he just argues it almost the same way that Dax does. But obviously, Cisco has lost his cool at this point. He is not up for a debate. 
um, even though Garak is right. But that scene again is so memorable, but it's very brief. It mm-hmm. is, and it's what a, part of what makes it memorable is that Garak takes the punishment. This is yeah. a character who we've already seen go toe to toe and actually put down Worf, right? Who's the warrior yeah. on the cast? Mm-hmm. If he wanted to hand Cisco a beatdown, he likely could, but he doesn't take a swing. He recognizes Cisco's going to need to get his shots in to burn through the first part of the anger before he'll yeah. hear what I have to say, and he yeah. lets it happen. Yeah. And and I think at it, it, some level, it's almost like Garrick, he, Garrick very much respects Cisco. You know, it, some of it is he's doing the things that he knows Cisco can't do. In order to carry on being Cisco. Um, in order to be Cisco. Um, you know, it's later on. I mean, it's it's the, it's the root beer conversation between Garrick and Quark. Uh, I think it's in the finale or close yeah, to the finale. Yeah, and I four. love I, yeah. I was it really only in season four. I believe so. Uh, I thought it was it. later on. Oh, OK, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's when the Cardassians take the station back over, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Because he starts uh, talking about missing the Federation. It's like, yeah, how cloying and, and bubbly it is. And friendly yeah, and nuts. And, but you, you drink enough of it, you like it. Yep. Um, yeah, it is from Way of the Warrior. That's the season four premiere. Oh, okay. So it's when the Klingons attack. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, because, yeah, they're basically, yeah, they're being circled by the sharks, so to speak. And, and they their only hope is the Federation. So yeah, it's it's sort of Garrick paying his debts to Cisco and and in his respect to him. Um, but even even yeah, and even even Quark when he when he quotes it was the ninety eighth rule of acquisition: every man has his price. Um, but he says it. But he says it in a way that he's he's not rubbing salt in the wound. He's saying he's he's proud of Cisco. Yeah. <laughs> um, in his Ferengi way, he's proud that Cisco can bribe someone. It's like it's like good job, son. You rode your bike. It, it really it's kind of that moment of it, it's not core. It, it really isn't him. You know, it's like Nini, you're sinking to my level. It's it's actually Quark saying, "Welcome, welcome to the big boys club." You, right. You're now bribing people. It's it's that, but also for Garrick and for Quark, I think both of them have this moment where they're like, "Do you know what, Cisco?" It, it's not even a case of congratulations, welcome to the club. I think, from my perspective, it's a lot of you know the reason I've respected you for so long is because I knew this was in you. Not I knew you'd get there eventually, but you know somewhere in you I knew that there was this little bit of you that was Ferengi or there's this little bit of you that's Cardassian or this is, and, and they've always seen that. And that's why they stay on the station. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why they respect him. That's why they're not trying to overpower him or, you know, or uh, stick their tongue out at him. Um, and they get that little, that little moment of pleasure, which he hates, obviously. I mean, Cisco, you can tell <laughs> he is not happy that these people that he despises are going fantastic. You've got these qualities where you always knew you had. And Cisco's like, Oh God, you're right. But do not point it out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that we would all would all go through. You can relate to this episode because you're in this situation where you need to achieve something that you're not morally proud of. And you are going to have to not necessarily cut these corners, but make these deals with certain devils. Um, and you can you can relate to that. You can think to yourself, do you know what? If it was for a greater good, I, w- I would do that. And that's mm-hmm. what this whole thing is about, isn't it? It's about doing the greater good. And having to live with it, which is how the episode finishes. Yeah. And it, it, it's, yeah, there's so many great, great performances in this. Um, and minus one. Yeah. It was absolutely, uh, you know, there's some great bits. It's like, you know, when, when Cisco's first recruiting the, the, the forger, 
um, you know, and, and the fortress just playing with him. It's like, oh, you know, you rescued me out of a Klingon prison. What do you need? You know, it's all very jovial. He's just he's kind of playing with Cisco and, and teasing him. And it's like, oh, you want to, you know, something with four or five Orion oh, slave five, girls. <laughs> you know, he, he's just poking at him. He's playing with him. And then and then Cisco goes, well, well, Mr. Garrick will give you the instructions you need. And he just says it. And suddenly the forger's complete demeanor is like, oh, crap. Yep. I'm dealing with Garrick. Suddenly the, the, the frivolities go. I mean, all of a sudden you, in that moment, you get that glimpse of, of what everyone else knows Garrick as. I mean, we all kind of suspect Garrick is, is a seedy character. Um, but you know, you get that mo, you know, you get that moment from the, from just that reaction of, oh, 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 never mind. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's later on where Garrick, you know, when they finish the forgery and Garrick's like, you know, I'll come see you later. And, and, say and, like, and just say hello. And it's just, and the way he said, and, and Andrew Robinson is, he's, he's one of the great gifts to DS9. Oh. Um, and Garrick is as a character, but the actor was, he's always been brilliant. I've always loved uh, everything he did on that show, but the way he says, I'm just going to come by and say hello, yeah. you know, and it's almost, you know, it's, 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 it's playful and it's, it's like, Oh, it's friendly. But the reaction on, on the other yeah. character's face is like, I'm going to die. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the criminal hologram projector, Griefen Tolar, um, he, he does two things, which, which you know, you've alluded to. Um, one of them, from the perspective of what you said before about how so much stuff happens outside of Cisco's point of view, that is very well alluded to. And it makes the episode feel chunkier than it is. It's only 45 minutes, but it's it's thickened out by, you know, oh, I have this backstory with Garrick. And then later on when Garrick's like, I had a conversation with Tolar and I suggested that if he tries to open the room to his quarters, it will explode. And there's just, you know, what has Garrick been doing behind the, you know, behind the scenes? And it's bigger than just what happens from Cisco's perspective, but also from a Star Trek perspective. Um, you know, if, if you hadn't watched much of DS9 before and you didn't know much about Garrick, it's, it's Graython's reaction to being told that Garrick is there. That's it. That's all you need to know. You mm-hmm. don't need to know about the Obsidian Order, but it's suggested before when, when Cisco says, call in some favors. You don't need to know about the fact he was either a torturer or interrogator or any of these things. You just see Graython's reaction. You're like, this Garrick guy is dodgy. That's all you need. It, mm-hmm. it just fills you in mm-hmm. immediately with no words. Yeah. And that is, I mean, one of the things we like to address, would this be a good first episode for new viewers? That's where I'm, I'm a little bit waffling. It is so well made, but mm. there's no doubt in my mind that if you sit down and watch this for the first time, you'll be engrossed. Yeah, I, I was I was debating that myself when I was watching it, because I'm like, does this work standalone? And it does, because the very beginning of the episode is is, is Cisco posting the uh, or on, casualty, not, list. Yeah. Necess- casualty list. Um, so you clearly, if you have no idea, you know that there's some sort of massive war, that mm-hmm. there's a huge board of casualty lists. Um, so we right off the get go, we know, yes, the war, there's a war going on and it's not going well for these people. So you immediately know that some, you know, that, that, the, you know, things are bad. Um, and so it's, you know, I think anybody that understands war and understands that, you know, you do anything to, you know, cause they're talking about who would you lose this week? Oh, I lost so-and-so. Oh, the captain is, you know, whatever happened, you know, and, and, it, and the dialogue segs perfectly into the, the Romulans. Um, it, it, it's exposition in, in, 
for you know it does dual service it's saying war is hell the war is not going well and the romulans are being complicit or at least apathetic yeah. uh, mm-hmm. in the war and so it does two things and, and right off the get-go it's very easy to pick up what's going on mm-hmm. um and it like you said the reactions of tolar and and everybody else the, the it really fills in it's very very chunky episode uh but in terms of if you are a fan, if you've been, you know, with this, uh, especially, I mean, there's some pay, there's some payoffs that, um, you know, that are subtle. The the fact that um, Beta Z is the the planet that's conquered. Yeah. To to somebody who's just kind of watching DS9, they may not understand who what Beta Z is. Yeah. To a long term fan, it's like, oh, that's Troy's homeworld. Yeah. That's a major Federation planet. Um, and then he ra- they rattle off the, the other planets, uh, Alpha Centauri, Andor, Teller, and Vulcan. Uh, those are all founding Federation worlds. Yeah. Um, those are four of the five uh, founding members of the Federation. Uh, so there's some some bits in there that are little nuggets for us hardcore fans that it's it's neat to hear those you know. It, it ties ba- you know bringing Beta Z into DS9. It's like oh we're bringing Troy's homeworld. Um, and in fact, there is a there's a there is a book uh, we were talking about with the with the Voyager about you know egg, there is a um, oh no, I'm gonna, I think it's called Battle for Beta Z or something like that that is about them retaking Beta Z and it's Troy and I think Riker. Obviously, <laughs> there's I mean, a you say yeah. the Beta Z. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, there there is an episode. There's a there's a standalone book with the Enterprise uh, E goes and uh, uh retake you know as part of the battle to retake beta z yeah. uh so there's you know th- these sorts of things kind of tie into a, a larger world but you don't necessarily have to know that to yeah, to get very, the very most much. they just realize mm-hmm. oh we've lost another planet yep. you know and that's like well that's bad um but for those of mm-hmm. us that are fans are like oh beta Z's a nice planet they're nice people they're they're kind of cool that's troy and and loxana's mm-hmm. planet and and they're all very nice you know uh you know telepaths and and why would anybody you know conquer you know a nice little planet like them um, from a from a perspective of a person who may not have watched star trek at all um because obviously what you've just described is had you been a, a next generation fan there were enough i want to call them easter eggs but there were enough star trek lore items in there to, to help you buy into it but um as you mentioned before you know if you were a brand new viewer um this episode yes it explains the war it explains the position they're in and I remember when I was watching this, I, I think I must have gone from like way of the warrior and I tuned out of DS9 for quite a while. I've since gone back and watched it all. And I kind of jumped in and kind of hot spotted through the, 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 the Dominion Wars beginning. So when they were like, oh, we're at war with the Dominion. This is a thing. They're in the Alpha Quadrant. They've done this. They're here to stay. This episode is wonderful because there isn't any Dominion. There is a war with it. It's a mm-hmm. considerable idea, but there is no Jem'Hadar. There are no spaceship fights. There are no shapeshifters apart from Odo. The Dominion is just a concept in this episode. So like you said, you don't need to know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a, you know, how much of DS9 do you get from this? Well, you get the whole station. Granted, you get the doctor. You get the captain's best friend. You get the, the criminal barman and the policeman that watches him. Um, you get... Uh, you get, you know, the Cardassian spy that lives on board as a tailor. Wonderful. But then I think what you also get as, as a first time viewer, and this is one of the reasons why um, I've always said of all the captains, you know, that have graced the screens and the bridges of Star Trek, Cisco will always be my favorite 
I would say it's because of this episode. To me, Avery Brooks, and it's interesting when you talk to other Star Trek fans who maybe put other series higher, they will debate you on this. But Avery Brooks just brings it home because mm-hmm. you said earlier on, he's the he's the captain that bears his soul. Kirk doesn't really have one. His soul lives in his codpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't really have one. His soul lives inside Riker. Um, uh, Janeway, she does have a soul. Um, but most of that just comes out when she gets a little bit upset and she keeps it very private. Mm-hmm. Uh, Archer, I'm not going to bother. Um, his soul is his dog. Whereas, whereas um, Cisco, he just lays it out there. He's the most human one. And he's right. like, Do you know what? This job is hard. Picard mm-hmm. doesn't find his job hard because he doesn't follow the rules. Picard doesn't find his job hard because his life is his job. That's all he cares about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Archer, he makes the job up because he's the defining captain. And Janeway, her life becomes her job because the only way she can stay sane in another universe, in another yeah. galaxy or quadrant, is to do the job. Whereas right. Cisco is living on his station every single day going, this job is hard. I've got friends, I've got family, but I've got these commitments and I'm going to have to sell a lot of my morals to get this job done and he's the one you relate to yeah you you really do because you know in this episode i mean jake uh jake isn't in this episode either i I forgot that um which is not unusual he's he's the one that's missed the most episodes um but because we see cisco um we know we know his father and we know his son we know he's a man He's a mortal man. He has a father who he references in this episode. Um, you know, it, it may have been an oversight. It may have been cut. But, you know, there would have been some interesting things if if he had had more interactions with Jake. Um, how do you look your son in the eye when you just realize you're complicit in murder? Mm. Um, you know, th- that could have added a whole new dimension to this episode, which is already fantastic. Um, but, you know, we, we do. We see him. He's both a father and a son. And that's something we don't see in a lot of other, uh, especially in Starfleet, uh, the captains, mm-hmm. is their extended family. I mean, we got to see, you know, Picard's brother and, and nephew, and, and that's about the extent of family uh, for Picard. Kirk, you know, not so much. Janeway, not so much. You know, and, and Archer, the same way. That We don't know who they are outside of being a captain. Mm-hmm. They are, they, they're, they're literally defined by their their position mm-hmm. whereas cisco i mean and and when we started ds9 remember he he didn't want the job he was mm-hmm. thinking about retiring and he uh, didn't have the rank either yeah he was a commander uh, mm-hmm. he only had a yeah he was a station commander not a not a captain and um but nothing is nothing is easy uh and that's that's i think why everything in ds9 feels more meaningful is nothing comes easy for anybody on this station, especially Cisco. Um, everything's a fight. He's constantly fighting with his first officer. He's constantly dealing with the criminal barkeep. The 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 head of station security argues with him about things. Yeah. Um, you know, you know all these different things. And then in this episode, the people arguing with him. I mean, Dax is quote unquote arguing with him. But even even Bashir is arguing. He's looking down his nose. He's kind of like, you're doing wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's it, that that particular scene doesn't quite work as well um, in the in the grand scheme. Um, but it is sort of Bashir, you know, the, the he's sort of the teenage son realizing that his dad isn't perfect, that dad can. He's you know, it's like, yeah, you know, 
but the Shiri is kind of representing the moral high ground in, in that particular scene where he's like, you can't, you realize this stuff put to, you know, put in the wrong hands could do some very, very bad things. But I, um, I think Bashir also represents the audience and our understanding of, of Starfleet up until that point, because mm-hmm. Bashir is completely oblivious to the fact that Cisco is completely signed off on this plan. We assume Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he doesn't know what Cisco's up to. The rest of Starfleet Command does. And and Bashir, from a from a I don't want to say grunt, but from a of a lower ranking officer's perspective, looking upwards, is going, Well, I only can see this much of the picture, and what you're doing, as you said, is wrong. That's not how Starfleet plays. And Cisco has to be tight lipped and say, I know, I don't care, here's the orders, it's in writing, complain all you want, knowing it will fall on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. And having to almost kind of like, as you say, from a child's perspective, kind of protect his his lower ranking officers, his mm-hmm. children from the harsh truth that is the higher up the ranks you go, the older you get. You know, when you become an adult, life isn't black and white and you're going to have to do some shady deals. Yeah. And that's a beautiful way of kind of going, sorry, kids, but that's that's the truth. It is. And to, to give Siddig credit, so much of that comes through just in the look on his face. Mm-hmm. Right. Cisco makes the request. And he's got. He, he's baffled and concerned simultaneously. And disgusted, I think. Actually. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, There's a revulsion. There's revulsion there. Yeah. yeah, it's all there. And that's... Deep Space Nine has long been my favorite Trek for two mm. reasons. One is that this has the long-form storytelling. Michael Piller was showrunner for the first two seasons, and then Iris Stephen Bear took over in season three. And when Bear came in, he said, okay, we're not on a spaceship. We're stuck here. We can't do the Kirk thing, come up mm-hmm. to some planet with a society we don't like being run by a computer, break the computer and say, okay, trust me, you'll be happier now, and leave. And you not deal the with the consequences. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it, you know, he can't just, you know, overthrow a civilization and walk away. Actions have consequences, and little ones have consequences. There's an episode very early on. Renog is doing a bunch of backdoor deals to get something for his uncle Quark and ends up with 144 gross cases. Self-stimbles. Self, um, self-stimbles. Yes, exactly. And they keep back. I love it. They do. If you actually pay attention to how many they got stuck with and yeah. how many cases of stimbles Quark is throwing into various deals along the way, yes, it adds every- up. Because Quark has them, I remember, because yeah. I, I was watching it with a friend. We had some takeout a few months back. And Quark, it's one of the later episodes, and he does a deal with someone, and he's like, do you know what? I'll throw in a crate of self-stealing symbols. I was like, yes! Yeah, and it's if you actually track the numbers, every case is accounted for. Oh, that is brilliant. I didn't realize. I just yeah. thought it was a recurring thing. That's genius. It is. That's the that's what sets Deep Space Nine apart for a lot of it to me. There's that. You know, they did decide, okay, we're going to be long-term. Now there's pressure from Berman and Pillar saying, you know, we want to keep it episodic so people can dip in and out. So they had limits on how many times they could put to be continued on the credits. So they <laughs> said, fine, don't put to be continued there. Yep. I mean, yeah. The, the series yeah. ends with a 10 part episode that never says to be continued. Yeah. True. Actually, yeah, I think, I think it's on, it's either on Amazon or Netflix. It, it lists the finale as a seven part finale. It's, it's um, Netflix. They're all numbered. Yeah, yeah. It's part it's all one of, yeah, they've got parts one through eight, starting with Penumbra, and then has, you know, what you leave behind parts one and yeah. two, because that's broken up into two for syndication yeah. for the two-hour finale. Yeah. Uh, but that's one, and I think the other one is the ensemble cast. 
I mean, not to detract. I mean, Patrick Stewart is a phenomenal actor. Brent oh, Spiner's gotcha. a very capable actor. Leonard Nimoy is. But I've never seen an ensemble cast gel as well as these guys. And not just the core. I mean, we've already talked about Andrew Robinson as Garrick. We also get consistently great performances from Mark Alemo as Ducat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. From uh, Jeffrey Coombs, especially as Wayun. Oh, to a lesser God, degree yeah. as Brent, he's, but his as, Wayun is genius. His, his Wayun is, although if you yeah. if you kind of compact all of the Wayun episodes together, he is very different at the beginning as he is than he is later on. But then obviously you end up with what is it three, four Wayuns over the course of the series? Seven, um, I thought. We end up. Yeah, but you don't see, you don't see the first because isn't well, the one we've true. introduced you the third one? Uh, we oh. are introduced to Wayun five. The last one we see is eight. Yes. I, so so I just watched the the. I've watched all of season seven in the last week and a half. So, wow. Commitment. That's um, pretty good. Yeah. That's a lot of Esri. It is. But I'm okay with that. Um, mm. she, I actually, yeah, when I rewatched um, DS9, I, I, Esri grew on me the second the second or third time I watched the series. It's actually not that <laughs> you realize how the, when you, I mean, not to, to deviate, but it's, you realize that she's not a trill that was trained for what she's in. Mm, yeah. Um, and so I actually, I think it, it works. It actually works for her. Um, cause she's, mm-hmm. she's very much confused. Um, because the trail that are trained to do this are much stronger personalities, much more confident. And she's not, she's a junior officer and a, 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 a counselor trainee. Yeah. Um, she's also utterly adorable. And, and credit to the actress as well, because she, she doesn't just play Dax well in her relationship with Ben, um, but she does a damn fine job of taking on a lot of Jadzia's isms. There is yeah. a lot of Jadzia in Esri's performance, and you just think to yourself, wow, you know, you, you as an actress, I guess you want to break out as your own person, but she, she had one season to convince people she was the Dax that was there for six years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we have tangent because she's not even in this episode. I know. Yeah, she's yeah. not even in the series yet because yeah, well. <laughs> they hadn't uh, left. But for those following along at home, uh, Esri Dax is played by Nikki DeBoer, who we discussed in the last episode because she is one of the two main leads in the best episode of the 1995 Outer Limits series, Quality of Mercy. Wow. It's now her that... and Robert Patrick going together. That's a reverse segue right there. That is, that's yeah. a callback. Well done. Um, and just there, there is one other recurring guest role that I, I want to call out, and that's J.G. Hertzler as Martok. Um, I'm not usually a huge fan of the of the Klingon episodes, but as General Martok, you know, it's I didn't appreciate it watching this in the first run and broadcast, but binge watching in the marathon and realizing the importance of that character to Worf and Jadzia's story arc. Yeah. And J.G. Hertzler is pitch perfect in the role. He doesn't mm-hmm. get as much depth or as much opportunity to to sort of show that as other actors do. Uh, but one thing I've always respected about James Garner, he's a fantastic actor. And Garner says in his autobiography, what bothers him are the actors where you look at them and you see someone acting. Then they still get the accolades. Mm-hmm. His yeah. sign of a talented actor is that you look at him and you can never catch him acting. Yeah. And I mean, Hersler like is one of those actors. Jeffrey Coombs, I mean, it, it's 
I, I'm much better at it now that I'm older. I, I, I must annoy my housemates so much because we'll watch something and I'll, I'll pause it right at the middle of a really important scene and I'll be like, I know that guy from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll instantly IMDB him and see if I'm right. But with Coombs, it's weird because it took me a very long time for the penny to drop that he was Brunt. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, when he plays the Andorian in Enterprise, it's staring you in the face because no offense to the Star Trek makeup department, he looks like Jeffrey Coombs. And yeah. so it's just way in with a blue face. But Brunt, it's just he's he's a different person. He's, he really is. Um, in the it, second last episode, he's got scenes as Brunt and way back to back for the only time in the series. <laughs> and I had classmates who still didn't put it together. His yep. name is <laughs> in the credits as both. And they literally cut from Coombs as Brunt to Coombs as Wayun, and they don't make the connection. In fact, I think they, they make some specific cuts from from face to face. I think there's like mm-hmm. a couple of times where they just like the the editor's just messing with you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and they also um, bring them in for the the series finale. There's a a scene in Vic Fontaine's holographic lounge mm-hmm. where they invited every major recurring actor to be a part of that moment. No, because this is it's a also, tapestry. Yeah. So Coombs, yeah, Hertzler, like all of these guys that that I just mentioned, are yeah. in that and, scene without makeup, with the possible exception of Marco Lemo as Galdicott, because he had a big role to play in that episode already, and because he had the Bajoran makeup on for a while, he would have been readily recognizable. Yeah, but um, Aaron Eisenberg is the... in there without the Nog makeup. We've yeah. got uh, Cecily Adams who took over the role as Ishka later on because uh, you know the original actress realized she just couldn't deal psychologically with having that much makeup on it gets claustrophobic wow, for a lot of people wow yeah yeah and and also in one of the characters that i don't think gets quite in as much credit uh, casey biggs as damar yes it was another one of those characters that that the the initial run through i just kind of thought he was a sleazy just kind of a slime ball uh, but then you realize, that it, you know, and it, it, one of the fun things about DS9 is it, it, it premiered like my freshman year in college. And then by the time it wrapped up, I had a kid. Uh, I was married and had a kid. Um, but I watch it again and, and watching DeMar's kind of descent and rebirth, you know, as he starts drinking. And, and when you're younger, it's like, oh, he's just being a drunk. He's just you realize what a hellish position he's in. Um, and and I mean, in this episode, they don't. They don't have him drinking, but yeah, for for a lot of season six and beginning of season seven, he's a drunk. Oh yeah, Damar um, at the canal. It's a big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's there's just a, trying. A book that wasn't written. Exactly, <laughs> and, and he's just trying. He's just trying to deaden the pain because he realizes that, you know, he's lost his mentor. He's killed his mentor's daughter, and he, and he now had he's a position that he doesn't want or he never expected to get. I mean, exactly. He's, now he, he's a really he's a really mm-hmm. trivial character. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea that he's going to become, you know, the voice of the Cardassian people and then the savior of the Cardassian people. Yeah. Yeah. When he was cast, he was told, stay available. We have plans for Damar. To let you know yeah. what level of foreplanning that is, he was cast for season four, episode 22. Yeah. He appears in the season five premiere and finale and then doesn't show up again until season six and ends up in 25 episodes. Yeah. It's and a very were- Rise to power. They were, and they were telling him right in season four, like they went through a lot of casting, and Casey Biggs didn't understand why they were doing so many readings and auditions and stuff mm-hmm. for a character that spoke two lines. Yeah. In this episode, and they said because we have plans, 
Yeah. You've got the role. We're not going to tell you what the plans are, but stay available because the second half of season six mm-hmm. and, and all of season seven are going to need you heavily. Yeah. I mean, the and- complexities of, of Damar and Kanar, um, if anything, echo this episode wonderfully because you see a man in a position that he didn't want, which you've got with Cisco. He didn't want to run the station to start with. Um, you see a man who is either having to make decisions he's not happy with or being encouraged by the people above him to do things that he's not happy with. And he's made mistakes that have, have weighed on his soul that might have been things he should never have done. Granted, Cisco doesn't shoot the daughter of somebody he respects, but you see where I'm going with this. Um, and, and, you know, he doesn't wander around the room with an empty glass resisting temptation. He is putting away those bottles mm-hmm. of car. So if anything, you see Cisco do a better job of swallowing this, this poison than, than Demar does. And, and Demar takes a hell of a lot longer to get out of a rut that Cisco survives. He, he does. And that is so much of Deep Space Nine. If you look at the different treks, I've found that, you know, at the very least within the single showrunner, largely beyond that, you know, if you go to Next Generation and take, you know, at least season three when they went to a, a consistent showrunner, but take any character from season three and drop them in this in a situation that they have in season seven, and I would expect them to react the same way and come up with the same solution. Because before Deep Space Nine, Trek wasn't about character growth. It was about taking interesting mm-hmm. but relatively static characters and putting them in the situations that were going to allow the conversations that they wanted to have. Mm. Right? You don't get a lot of change. Next Gen, we didn't see a lot of change. The first six seasons, you... You know, the best of both worlds changed the way Picard reacted to the Borg specifically, but not the way he reacted to the Romans or the Cardassians or anyone else. Mm -hmm. Until they get into what they knew would be the final season and started pairing off characters and wrapping up storylines, there was almost no difference in their behavior. Same with the original series. The only marked differences that I could see there in behavior is that while Yeoman Rand was still sort of a thing in those early episodes in season one, Kirk wasn't getting involved with anyone romantically because he was pining for Rand. Hmm. And it's not until she left for reasons that we don't really need to get into, at least not in the Deep Space Nine episode, that he became the womanizer. And even that wasn't really pronounced until season three when they changed showrunners. Hmm. But Deep Space Nine, the first two seasons were Mark or Michael Pillar. And then he got transferred to Voyager to kick that off. And Rick Berman came to Iris Stephen Bear very apologetically to let him down easy and say, Trek is ultimately about people on a ship exploring. You're not on a ship. Your show will never be the flagship. You're always going to be sort of the bastard mm. stepchild. You need to accept that and move on. Mm-hmm. And Iris Stephen Bear kept the Foker face and played it down and said, okay, I understand. And then as soon as Berman left the building, he ran to the writer's room and said, great news, we can do whatever we want. We're going to war. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where and for, it changes. You can't take Deep Space yeah. Nine is the, the Star Trek series where you take any random character as they first appeared season one or later and drop them into season seven. They're a different person who would react a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would not be the I same. Mean, Even look at Cassidy Yates. She's mm-hmm. in the series 15 times. She's gone from freighter captain and possible love yeah. interest to convicted criminal serving time. 
Yeah, yeah. To wife of a messiah. Yeah, and and mother to, of child. Yeah. Yeah. To yeah, single. She ends mm-hmm. up single mother, widowed mm-hmm. to a god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It. Um, I mean, you you were you're right about the the way that Trek evolves because obviously in in next gen, um, you've got that ever present but it never goes anywhere relationship with Troy and Riker. You have mm-hmm. the ever present but you don't really see it until first contact growth and humanity of data you know the only person that really grows is will wheaton and he has the decency to leave um but uh but in ds9 yeah you get you get marriage you get death you get you get you know significant injury i mean let's not forget that nog loses a leg and you know you you don't have that kind of pain anywhere else in star trek you see a lot of it in voyager um but obviously it's a it's a smaller community with less of an influx of new people uh, with Tom and Balana's uh, marriage, um, and then the, kind of the only other relationship that does anything at the end is is the very brief kind of oh and by the way Chakotay and Seven have been you know knocking knees for a while, but it's DS9 that does it like you say DS9. It's not just about what hairstyle have we given Kira this year. It's it's about well, where are people? Who's married? Who's dead? You know what rank are you now? What do you do? Um, what extras have we brought in? I mean if you look at um, Rom's wife. Lita. Mm-hmm. It's such a mm-hmm. trivial concept that she's just this person that is one of the Darbo girls with a line. I mean, it takes them almost seven years to give Enpella a damn line. She was just a tall woman with a large bust that wore next to nothing in like a body stocking. And I don't mm-hmm. think she speaks until like the, the seventh season, although she's probably in more episodes than Lita. Um, but they, they pull it off. They make Lita meaningful. Mm hmm. And the fact that she hooks up with Rom of all, of all people, <laughs> of all people, <laughs> the savior of the Alpha Quadrant with the yes. idea of the self-replicating minds, which is brilliant. Yeah. So Bashir's ex-girlfriend ends up as the first lady for the Ferengi Empire. Because exactly. Rom ends the, up as the Grand Angus. That's right. The fact that you go back to that whole, I mean, you know, ignoring the fact that I, I just said Voyager was a small community. DS9 hits that on the head because you have that, you know a small community of people and there's only so many relationships you can have before you start dating someone's ex. And they even have an episode about that um, <laughs> where they have to have a breakup on Ricer, which is brilliant. Um, you know, and, and they do that. That's the reality of that ship. You don't get that in next gen. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Okay. You do with Worf and Troy and Riker, I guess a, a little bit. Yeah. But even that felt, I mean, that wasn't, it didn't feel like it was something that they built to and earned. It felt like, how are we going to wrap these up? Oh, that would be different. Mm-hmm. Right. And it wasn't the obvious one. And even that, they ended up tossing away as they brought Worf to Deep Space Nine alone. And Troy and Riker ended up together again in the films. Whereas with Deep Space mm-hmm. Nine, I think what sets it apart, the other treks, the writers would work in character moments when they could. But because of the largely episodic structure, you know, on Voyager... Unless you're the Doctor or Seven of Nine, character growth is incremental enough that you may not even notice it. Yeah. Whereas with Deep Space Nine, it feels like they're putting the character growth first and then wrapping plots around them that will make that happen. Yeah, it, it, you really, you re- yeah, you have characters that are real. They're, they're more realistic because, I mean, you look at, you look at O'Brien, I mean, on... In next gen, you know, sure, these characters, Jordy can work 18 hour shifts and then go sleep and then come back and do 18 hours more. O'Brien's got a wife and kids. 
um, you know, if he puts in an 18 hour shift, goes home and crashes, there's repercussions, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and Keiko is, is a long suffering, you know, wife in, in the series. And, um, uh, she does a, a fantastic job of it. Cause it's like, you know, do what you got to do, but, you know, I, I kind of miss my husband, you know, my kids miss their father, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. those sorts of things that really do, um, you know, pay off better because they're a little more realistic in that, you know, life on a starship is one thing that life, you know, on a station when you've got your kids and your wife and, and everything and, and you've got to worry about that. And, 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 and it informs, you know, with Cisco and, and O'Brien, they've got family on the station. When the station comes under attack, they really, really need to defend the station. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it becomes a, a, a much bigger deal for them. Um, and, and you know, like I said, the, the, the pilot episode where, where O'Brien brings Keiko, uh, to DS9, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, we, we were living in the luxury apartments before and now we're moving to the slums. Um, but it's a promotion, honey. I swear. Um, that moment of, you know, you realize that living on DS9 is no picnic. Um, and it, it it becomes, and it's, it's fun to look at episode one versus the final episode and look at how DS9's evolved and grown and cleaned itself up and dusted itself off. And now it's this, you know, bright shining beacon, uh, you know, it's it's sort of San Francisco pre Gold Rush versus San Francisco today. Uh, you know, it's sort of this. You know, what what's different about it? It just it, the station herself evolves along with it. Um, yeah, and and maybe it's because our reaction because it's so alien and and kudos to to the design team for creating something that looks so incredibly alien. Oh, no, yes. and beautiful though. I mean, the architect it was, it's not oh. genius. It's gorgeous to look at. Absolutely. The, the, it is. Everything's based on threes and, and things like that that just look, it looks so alien. But by the, by the time, you know, it, it fades off into the distance, uh, you know, we miss it. It's, it's home. Um, if, if you ever have the displeasure of seeing what the new DS9 looks like, please, you know, don't go looking for it. It looks ugly. It's, it's, it's terrible. And, and I really feel like they, they messed up on something with the, uh, the extended books uh, series. Oh, right. I was afraid to ask for a moment. But, I mean, uh, talking about the, the, the finale versus the pilot, I mean, I, I remember because I was very happy that I had, um, oh, I want to remember the first one. Is it, it's not called Harbinger. What's the first episode called? Emissary. There you go. Harbinger is something else to do with DS9. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, an Emissary actually works surprisingly well. If you watch Emissary and then you watch what we leave, you know, what you leave behind, they do a very good job of bringing it full circle. You've got, you know, the, 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 the visions with the prophets. You've got it not being linear, that massive focus on that. Um, uh, you know, the, the, like you said about the station, about how when you first get there, it's so alien, it's so destroyed. When you finally leave it, it's beautiful. It's complete. It's jobbed. And they tie so well together. This episode, though, is interesting because there are no prophets. Mm-hmm. No, there's, there's no wormhole. There's um, there's little of what goes into the beginning and what comes out of the end, apart from a mention of the Dominion. What's in this episode is very, very Star Trek. You have a classic Star Trek bad guy. Mm-hmm. You have the idea <laughs> of generation principles. Um, I think the most Deep Space Nine thing about it is is Wayun and the Cardassians. And even the Cardassians aren't, you know, wholeheartedly DS9. They're just given a lot more attention in DS9. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this episode- some of- 
Yeah, on. some of the some of the weight of him being the emissary is is there uh, when the senator when Senator Freenak first shows up. Um, yes. We, oddly enough, we haven't mentioned him a whole lot in the discussion because uh, he's fantastic in this. <laughs> um, but Senator Freenak, when he first meets Cisco, he rattles off all of Cisco's titles, including emissary of the prophets. So at at that point, we do kind of see that Cisco's got he's bearing a big weight, not just as commander of the station. Oh yeah, um, he's bearing he's bearing a lot. Um, he's kind of this keystone uh, in the whole the whole thing i mean because he talks like oh yeah you're the commander of the station and you're the embassy of the prophets and oh yes you're also the guy that started this whole mess um you know in in and, and uh you know vreenak does that in in only the way that a romulan can can just deliver it with just as as absurdic and just vicious as he can without really raising his voice and he just the he reaffirms the fact that this really is all of cisco's fault uh, he kind of got the whole ball rolling. Um, and so, you know, th- that adds to the weight, I think, that, that Cisco's bearing down. And Vreenak exploits it. He's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to. You know, it's like, let me poke you a little bit more. Yeah, that's just trigger that nerve. Although I have to say, it's the scenes with Vreenak where you realize how well Dax can mimic a Romulan. And you do have mm-hmm. to wonder whether or not they went to the same kind of like, you know, acting workshop. Okay, guys, this is how a Romulan behaves. And uh, you both need to behave this way so that your impression of Vreenak, you know, is going to be really good. Because some of the stuff that, that Vreenak says when they're in whichever room they're in um, and they're drinking cauliflower and he's talking about it and and, mm-hmm. he's, you know, and he says, what if I told you about um, uh, a, a Dominion plot to invade Romulan, Romulus? And he just says, I'd need proof. And you immediately see exactly what Dax said was true. She got it bang on because that's how that conversation goes. Um, just in a far more passive, aggressive, calm, needling kind of way. Yeah. Cause, cause the, the, yeah, the conversation, half of the conversation was about the drink, not about what's going on. He's poking Cisco about how bad the, you know, the replicator is on their, this drink. It's like, it really should. And then after a while, it's, eh, it's kind of growing on me. But it's you know, interesting it's, because you've, you've got another, this lovely drink analogy again. We were talking um, uh, about root beer earlier <laughs> on. And that, that wonderful thing with, you know, it's so much like the Federation. It's bubbly. It's cloying. You know, it's it's fantastic. You get to like it. And the way that Vreenak is describing the cauliflower and how he's very he very nearly bought it for a second he thought for a second that that might have been it you know i i very nearly believed it and you know he's just being a git he's just it's a complete analogy for the fact mm-hmm. that you know, Cisco very nearly convinced him but no you failed horribly and it's just another wonderful deep space nine mm-hmm. alcohol drink reference somehow they just every season there has to be one how can we fold alcohol and a metaphor together exactly. to end up being annoying to someone Oh yeah. Well, even you look at season seven, Klingon blood wine, specifically vintage twenty three oh nine. Yeah. Twenty three oh nine. But isn't isn't that the? Oh, is it the stuff that gets Gowron delivers it to Martok and then Nog steals it as part of that episode? Well, the, the stuff that Gowron delivers and gets stolen is vintage twenty three oh one. Yeah, and that's part the of what makes, is the part of what spews it over is that he replaces it with twenty three oh nine, which is even better. Ah, yes. So it's all and okay. That's the, that's the stuff that they keep talking about. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, although I mean, you know, going back to, to drink analogies, <laughs> they make that promise about drinking blood wine on Cardassia quite early in the in the mm-hmm. war. I think season six. 
Yeah. Um, and, and when the moment comes in season seven, it's very differently interpreted, you know, because obviously the admiral mm-hmm. and the captain pour the blood wine on the floor and they're like, there's no, there's no happiness here. And Martok's like, sod it and drinks the drink, you know, and, and it, that's beautiful because it's a callback and it's very true to the two species. And it's, it's a reality check that it's not necessarily the win that they wanted. Yeah, yeah. It, that it's very much a Pyrrhic victory. And it, 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 it plays to Hertzler's Martok that he's just, he's so joyously Klingon. He's mm. just so unabashedly Klingon, whereas Worf's so puckered. Um, and, and he keeps meeting these Klingons that are like, dude, lighten up, have some fun. Um, and, and I think, you know, without, through Next Gen, we, we learn a little bit more about the Klingons, but really DS9 is really where we get to explore Klingon culture, Ferengi culture. Uh, we get to really see the depths of, of these, these, uh, races. And I think the, yeah, her, yeah, in, and and uh, Hertzler, he comes back. He comes back. He's on Enterprise. He has a he plays a Klingon again on Enterprise. I think he plays. He also plays a shapeshifter in DS9. Mm-hmm. He's he's got a list, but he goes under different names. Yeah, uh, he'll, he'll have John Hertzler, and um, yeah, he plays like yeah, he plays a shapeshifter at one point. Mm. Um, he's if you go look him up on IMDb, he's he before he was Martok, he was several characters, and then after Martok. He was the uh, the Klingon lawyer uh, in Enterprise. Oh yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, he? yeah. He's, yeah. A, he's also a voice actor and a hell of a lot of Star Trek mm-hmm. stuff, especially yeah, yeah. computer games. He did a lot of voice acting. Yeah, yeah. and he's also uh, got a guest spot on Voyager in the episode that guest stars, you know, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> he is the alien that trains Seven of Nine that she ends up facing. Oh God, yeah, yeah. So. Like like Coombs, he's a man of many faces. Um, though I'll admit that the 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 lawyer that he plays in Enterprise isn't a far cry from uh, Martok um, in in DS9. He's he's kind of the same one, but it, it, it's an interesting character because he's talking back then, not to devi- deviate, but he's you know talking about how Klingons Klingons can find honor in whatever they do. It's not just the bloody battle. Um, you know, a lawyer can find glory in winning a case. A scientist can win glory in making a discovery. Um, and so he's kind of, you know, he talks about those things, and he, he does a fantastic job of it. So he's, he's, you're right. It, the, the, but the, yeah, the whole thing of, of, you know, Admiral Ross and Cisco pouring their blood wine out, and he's like, God, hell with it, I won. <laughs> um, you know, I'm gonna, enjoy, I'm gonna get drunk. Uh, it, and it may be that Martok is under. He understands that this is not a. Uh, this isn't. This isn't a good win. It's just a win. But he's going to get that, drunk. And that's what we said. Again. That's what we said we would do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. With Klingons, it's just that's what you do after victory in battle. We are standing over the, you know, the corpses of our men. And part of it could be the Klingon view of death. His comrades yeah. died in glorious battle for a noble and honorable cause. They're at Stobel Corps, so let's celebrate that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and sir. and. And and also with the Klingon culture, it's not just celebrating your fallen comrades. It's fall. It's it's celebrating your your the the vanquished. Um, you you honor them as well. Um, there's a couple episodes where they talk about, and maybe it's in some of the books where they 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 honor the they're they're defeated. Um, you know, if if they put up a good fight, then they put up a good fight, and then, and they're they're honorable as well. It doesn't make them less uh less than you. It makes them just as worthy as you. They just they were on the wrong end of the battlet that day. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's how Chancellor Galron passes the, the torch to 
to Chancellor Martok, like Quark or uh, Worf kills him. You know, he calls him out across the, the political table, kills him in battle, and then performs the death rite for an honorable death to help Galron see his way into Stobel Court. All the others are totally fine with that, because that's just the way it goes. Another power player inside the series that is Deep Space Nine of a man who didn't want the job. Because <laughs> <laughs> Martok doesn't want to be Chancellor. Cisco doesn't want to run the station. Demand doesn't want to work for the Dominion. It's, it's yeah, lots and of reluctant people. It is, and it's actually, you know, Worf says, well, hey, you know, Kayla said, great men don't seek power. They simply have power thrust upon them. And then turn it around at the end of the finale when Martok is saying, okay, the Federation needs a new ambassador on Klingon. Worf, you're the man. And we're yeah. saying, I don't oh. want the job. And Martok throws the same words back in his face. Some people do not seek, or great men do not seek power. They have power thrust upon them. Yeah. I'm an ambassador. I can hunt Tog. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. They, and then they get, then they go and kill it with Nemesis. And like one of the little lines in the during the wedding is that that Worf's no longer an ambassador. It's like really. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. I'm, I'm glad I forgot that. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe it's in a deleted scene. But I hope it's like, so. Yeah. I think yeah. it's it's in a it's maybe it's with Will Wheaton's scenes. Well, it's... maybe it's maybe it's one of Will Wheaton's uh, scenes in the deleted scenes is that that he's no longer the ambassador. He wants to be a because he's in uniform, I mean, you think about it, if he's an ambassador, he wouldn't be yeah. A, yeah. a Starfleet officer anymore. He would be a, a Federation ambassador. Well, yeah, but um, we're also talking about a script where yeah. you know, the, the third soon android that was discovered, oh. the original draft was named B9, to tell you this is not an evil lore thing. That was the quasi-subtle dig that, no, this is a good guy. Only the producers were afraid that fans wouldn't and audiences wouldn't know what the word benign meant yeah. because Braga didn't know what benign meant and had to have it explained to him. So he insisted they named it before because he came first. Yeah. So it's before. This is this is this is also the same movie where we had a car chase. <laughs> yeah. Stuart Barrett is a phenomenal editor, but not so much a director. But anyway. Oh yeah. If, we, yeah. We, if you we, if you if you ever want to throw. If, find a reason to throw something at your TV, listen to his commentary on the DVD. And he, he it's so obvious he has zero interest in being there. It's so bad. Well, we've, uh, we've, we've just helped elevate this episode above other Star Trek <laughs> screens now. So that's, that's good. It's made it look yeah. even better. Fantastic. It is. And I mean, we keep deviating, but I think some of that is because clearly all three of us love Deep Space Nine as a whole. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, this one came out as the best episode by a hair's breadth. This is another one where I had to go to the actual breakdown of the way IMDb users were voting to see which was the best. Because to that 9.3 out of 10, this tied with Trials and Tribulations from Season 5. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I can see, but then, that, that has the nostalgia value. This is just pure quality. Yeah. Trials and Tribulations is, is definitely it's it's fan service and not that it's bad because it was that was for the 30th anniversary Star Trek's 30th. It was yeah that was the one where they took Forrest Gump technology and used it to put the Deep Space Nine crew back in the original Trouble with Tribbles. And when we were talking about whether this would be a good episode for viewers to watch, whether it's representative of the series. I think Trials and Tribulations, especially if you're a fan of the original series, is an easier one to comprehend as a jumping on 
and it's a lot more fun. <laughs> this one doesn't deal with all the politics and themes like religion and, you know, having Kyle Paca replaced with Kai Wynn and that very rich uh, storyline dealing with that, with the magnificent Louise Fletcher, who I sadly failed to call out when I was calling out the cast members and really should have. I can't oh. believe I forgot her. Well, it's because she just, yeah, she's not in this one, but yeah, she's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, she's got some pitch-perfect performances in this, and we find out some of them they had a caught just off-scene because she had the flu and had 103 Fahrenheit fever. Uh -huh. And, you know, she'd get there, she'd deliver her lines bang on, and then pass out until they needed her again. Wow. That's the yeah. level of quality that we've got in the regular and recurring cast. Yeah, this, I mean, this this episode is actually missing two of its its best uh, guest actors, both Louise Fletcher as Kai Wynn uh, and um, Mark Alamo uh, as Gold Ducat. So, and it's yeah. it, this episode is fan, is is the pinnacle of the sh probably the pinnacle of the series, but it's also yeah, it's missing and it's just missing two of its its most delicious villains. Yeah, it is. I I actually would not recommend this as a first episode for people. Not because you wouldn't be able to understand it, but because jumping in this late in such a long and well-told story, you will be doing yourself a disservice. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you need to have... There is... It's, it, it, the thing is, it would be hard to pick a jumping-on episode because DS9, and you've already said, not, not, we're not necessarily biased, but we're all massive fans of this, mm -hmm. this trek. Mm -hmm is that where would you jump on apart from the beginning? Because, okay, you've got to get through the first two seasons, which is a lot more religion than what happens later. Um, I find that's how I describe season one and season two. There's a hell of a lot of Bajor's religion in the first mm -hmm. two seasons, which I yeah. guess helps, but they yeah. realize it's not that important later. Well, it is the founders um, weren't introduced until season three premiere. Well, actually, all yes, those people but, were introduced in the season three premiere. You didn't learn they were the founders of the Dominion until the second episode of season three. Yeah. So we, we already the, knew that the Ferengi were trying to open trade negotiations with the Dominion. We knew they were a major player. We didn't understand what they truly were until we had those first two seasons already behind us. That was yeah. really Iris Stephen bear. You, coming you in. could, yeah, you could jump in on, on the search, which is yeah the beginning of season three. Um, Cause that introduces the defiant. Um, and then, you know, that introduces yeah the, the founders, um, but it's, I wouldn't look at this as how late can I jump on. Mm -hmm. If you want to shortcut to what makes Deep Space Nine great, I would start with Emissary, but yeah. then I would look at which of those episodes in the first two seasons can we omit. Right? You can skip <laughs> yeah. Move Along Home. You could skip oh, The Passenger. Yeah. There's a couple you could skip because they don't contribute to the long-term storytelling. But Deep Space Nine is easily the most serialized Star Trek out there. Yeah. Now, I personally haven't watched the last two seasons of Enterprise. I hear there's a lot more of that later. Yes. And getting that much, that serialized that early is probably a sign that had Enterprise gotten seven seasons, it could very well have blown Deep Space Nine out of the water for the serialized storytelling. But compare Deep Space Nine to Next Gen or Voyager, and there are serialized elements in Voyager, as I discovered watching it through, more so than in Next Gen. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the original crew, with the, like the original cast, whether we're looking at the live action or the animated, those are the most episodic. 
if yeah. anything, the episode, the animated is less episodic than the original series, just because proportionally it's got more episodes that are direct sequels that only lasted 22 episodes, and they come back to the Tribbles, they come back to Harry Mud, mm. right? Whereas there is just proportionately less of that in the live yeah. action version. But yeah, Deep Space Nine prior to Enterprise and from the rumors we're hearing, odds are Discovery is going to be the most heavily serialized yet. It sounds mm-hmm. like they're doing like the more like the Netflix Marvel model where, yeah, the, we're going to have one story told in 13 chapters. Yeah. And there and may that, be that seems... beginning, middle, end of those chapters, but it's going to, it sounds like it's going to be structured more like a Joss Whedon series where the episodes can only be watched in this order. Or you will get contradictions. Yeah. Voyager could have done better. If Voyager had done that, maybe turn each season into an arc. Um, you know, and in, in, like you said, instead of it just being the long slog home, it could be, you know, they go to this area. Now they've got to deal with this issue or this, you know, whatever, you know, the territories. Yeah, territories. And then they deal with that territory and get move on. By the finale, um, what's well, a year from hell is a lot of people refer to as like it was it was a you know a two part episode that could have been an entire season. The yeah. year from um, hell could have been a year. Yeah, yeah. It could have we could have actually gone through the year from hell. That would have been far more uh, you know enjoyable, well, not enjoyable, but uh, juicy um, than just giving it a two part episode. Yeah, but would people have then knocked at the end of the season when it all snaps back into alignment and you're like, so hang on a minute. You, you, it's, you, it's, you, it's, it's Star Trek. To that. Yeah, but they, they also didn't need to edit with a reset button. They could have had, you know, a year from hell that they recovered from. Yeah. Right? And then, kind and then of the, like the, Picard the coming back from his experience as Locutus. Yeah, the next season starts with the ship being repaired. Yeah, like you said, you know, you, you, you have the, the season downtime to fix everything back up yeah no you're right it would have worked yeah it could have yeah it, it especially if you killed off a, you know if you wanted to lose it, it could have been their opportunity to get rid of chakotay for god's sake oh did i say that out loud? okay well um, you know we, we could have gotten rid of chakotay i mean we didn't get into it in the voyager podcast we should have robbie Maybe beltran we'll for the made worst. the mistake of publicly saying you know people asked why he thought voyager had the lowest ratings of all the the, the track yeah. up to that point at that time, he made the mistake of saying it's because we have the worst writers. So bad mouth in the writers is not generally a good plan. No, and, it's not. A, it's a career limiting move. Yeah. So <laughs> what they did from there was made sure that Chakotay had just enough to do in every episode that he had to be in every episode. So he couldn't be freed up to make movies like Colomini did, but also so little to do that. I mean, there's times where in an entire episode, He's sitting there, says shields up once, and that's his contribution. Mm-hmm. But his schedule's tied up. So that's... Chakotay was one of the characters on the Voyager roster that they never really figured out how to use. Mm-hmm. Hashtag life lessons. Exactly. Whereas here, you know, it, it feel, you, can, you can feel the difference between the Michael Pillar years and the Iris Stephen Bear years. Michael Pillar still felt like Star Trek should be episodic. So those first two seasons were largely episodic. And even then, you could see that the the change in showrunner was coming along. 
because that season two finale, it definitely ends in a way that says there's more stories coming, but it's not really a cliffhanger. Right? They had the freedom to start season three really any way they wanted. Mm-hmm. All we knew at this point was that, oh, the Vorda are part of the are part of the Dominion. With a power that we never see again. That telekinetic thing. It's glazed over that nicely. Oh, yeah. They had it in a computer game. I'll give you that much. They kept it for the uh, yeah. the game that they based on that trilogy of books. But... And, and the Vorta are clones, so it may be something that that model needed, but the Wayon model didn't. We don't oh, know if it's... So the off-screen explanation, Blaine, I love it. <laughs> well, and they've, they've established that the, the founders tweaked the genetic code of the Vorta, so they may have decided, you know what, we don't want them to have that power anymore we don't we don't trust them to have that power it's yeah. it's yeah i could i could easily see the the, the founders yeah, being paranoid enough to go you know what we don't want a, one of our little mm-hmm. minion species having that ability you know what you, the next set don't don't put that little <laughs> that upgrade in yeah or for all we know that one vorta that uses it was using technology they didn't recognize because they needed it for that purpose for that episode yeah. it may and, not have been a biological you- ability well, you mm-hmm. does defect, so you know you do see reason for the the border to have their genes edited by the founders. So who knows? Yeah. Uh, but in any event, so we should probably actually wrap this up. I think we're just going to keep tripping over each other <laughs> as we're going through. I think you know we didn't specifically say this is the section, but I believe we've covered why Atlanta at this point in the ratings, like the deeper meanings and messages in this particular episode. It, it doesn't really give a lesson, but it asks some major questions. Ultimately, do the ends justify the means? Right. And that's really what this is about on so many levels. Mm-hmm. It, it, and it gives, it, it lends credence to the concept of Section 31. Um, you know, later yeah. on, it, it, it's like, oh, if Cisco can do what's best for the greater good, then maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's not. Uh, maybe, maybe we can get away with this concept and, and it gives it a little more of a debate rather than just being, no, that's wrong. Yeah. We get that with Admiral Ross later on. We get that with so many. Mm. And that is, I think what part, another part of what sets deep space nine apart because so many of the core cast members are not Federation members. They have the freedom to use the types of interpersonal conflict that were not permitted among Starfleet crews. Yeah. Right. All that's one of the things that some people have complained about. They've talked about Star Trek being very restrictive. Every show has a series bible that you have to adhere to. And one of Roddenberry's rules for Star Trek is that Starfleet members and a, or Federation members and especially Starfleet crew members do not find themselves motivated by greed or personal reasons. They all act for the greater good, and interpersonal conflicts can only come from disputes over what that greater good is. As soon as you've got Starfleet members managing a Bajoran station built by Cardassians, populated by Ferengi and any other species that shows up, at war with a completely alien civilization from the other side of the galaxy. Allied with the Klingons. Yeah, you get... It's such a rich tapestry to draw from. Because so few characters need to be Starfleet. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, re, it, reality doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, space is a vacuum, but yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's not a vacuum. You don't you don't have the luxury of 
uh, uh, you know, the, like you said, everybody on the ship, everybody's Starfleet, everybody swore the same oath. Therefore, we're all going to kind of agree on what's, you know, we're all going to kind of get along. Whereas, yeah, DS9, it's like, yeah, Kira didn't sign, she didn't sign the, the you know, Bajor is not a signatory on the Articles of the Federation. They're, they don't believe the same things. Uh, they're, they're a highly religious people. Um, not to mention yeah. they just spent, you know, several decades being, you know, the Cardassians, you know, slave labor, toy, slave yeah. labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got, you've got a, you've got a bunch of people that have until just recently, terrorism was a, a very good thing for them. Um, you know, it, it's kind of fun to watch DS9 post uh, 9-11. Um, it, it's a very, it's a very different take, uh, you know, looking at how we look at terrorism today and looking at how, you know, literally the second in command of the station was a terrorist. She blew up people and, you know, places. She did some very unethical, very vicious things for the good of her people. And it's those skills that have tipped the balance at the very yeah. end. Yes. It, it's a major part of the stories. And I, I love that. Yeah, I also love that they also keep the cultures distinct. You know, we talked about how readily the Maquis and the Starfleet crew integrated in the Voyager episode. Here it's at the point, it's very subtle. The first time you see Goldicott on the station, he comments about how bright the Federation people keep it and how cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's consistent from that point. Not only is anything on Cardassia Prime more dimly lit than the Federation stuff, not only do we have people complaining about how warm the Cardassians like to keep it, including the Founders and Wayun, every time Golducott sets foot on Deep Space Nine, he squints for his first three or four minutes on screen while his eyes adjust to the higher light levels. I, I don't know how much of that it was directed, I don't know how much that was Mark Limo, but when he first comes on there, you get mm-hmm. a little squint, and you can actually see the actor letting his eyes adjust to the light. It's it's equal parts adjusting the light and he's he's also giving the station a very critical eye because mm-hmm. it's like this used to be my place. This yeah. was my station for a long time. Um, and and I love how the series does kind of dip back into it that, that DS9 is one thing. Tarek Nor was something completely different. It was not a pleasant place. It was a pretty horrific place um, that, that even the station herself has sort of a bad rep. Uh, that she's trying to overcome um, and that, yeah, that, that he looks, you know, he looks over everything with a critical eye. Um, like he's, he's, he's looking at what's on everyone's screen. He's checking it whenever he's in ops, whenever he's in the Cisco's office, because it used to be my office and he feels weird being, you know, sitting on the other side of the table. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And even know, just the relationship between Ducat and Cisco just to the point that Ducat understands what it means that the baseball is left on the desk yeah. when the Federation yeah. leave it. It was so well used. And then when the and then when the baseball is gone at the end of season six, yeah, um, they 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 flip that around even better. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, but yeah, leaving the the ball behind and then the ball was gone and Kira's like, oh crap, he may not be coming back. Um, but yeah. it's it's there at the end of season seven, though, isn't it? Because she picks it up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, so Cisco brings it back with him from Earth because that ball actually turned out to be a piece of the plan the prophets had for him. Yeah. It was part of the, the directions for him to discover the orb of the emissary. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
it and just the way the prophets have been manipulating Cisco since before he was born. Yeah, is another piece of the puzzle. So I don't know. I think we can. I think it's clear that if we yeah. don't check ourselves, we're going to run for several more hours just raving about exactly. the series as a whole. If you ever need to do an episode by episode Deep Space Nine podcast, I think you've you've got your crew. Oh my god, yes. Uh, well, I mean, you deep, know what? Listen, listen to the Prophets is already doing that well over at the Two True Freaks Network. So they are currently releasing late season three episodes. Wow. Um, they have actually invited me on a couple of times. They declared me their official science advisor when they were covering season two. Uh, Wise choice. I've been on there for a few times, and listeners might know, I've as I've been watching the episodes, I've been sending them email feedback. So starting with late season two episodes, there's a little snippet of what I think episode by episode running all the way through. <laughs> and it was a well-timed plug as well, because if they've just got to the middle of season three, stuff's about to get good. Tune in now, everybody. Yep. Although that's... They're just getting into season three at the time of this recording. Oh, By the time people hear it, they're because they come out on a bi-weekly schedule. You're going to be there. You're going to be hearing this right around the time they're they're wrapping up season five, somewhere in that neighborhood. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, but that's there. And by that point, um, Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which is going through episode by episode, movie by movie, for all of Trek should also be into Deep Space Nine, although not quite as far. Um, the way things are going, Listen to the Prophets and Mission Log should actually wrap up their Deep Space Nine coverage almost simultaneously. Maybe all of this love for Deep Space Nine will finally bring that Blu-ray series that everybody's been looking for. Unfortunately, that's, you know, before we go, we will talk about that, and then we do need to go, because I know... <laughs> I mean, at least one of our guests has something specific planned and only has well, so much the time. the sun left. is setting where I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, in terms of seeing Trek on Blu-ray, the two series we have yet to see on Blu-ray are Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and that's because they shifted to CGI for the special effects largely in those two seasons. Deep Space Nine, it was a mix, especially depending on which season you're on. Mm -hmm. Voyager was almost exclusively CGI, and it was done for broadcast television, which had lower resolution than DVD does. Now, when they did that with Next Generation and with the original series, they were able to convert to Blu-ray because they started with film elements and then did the special effects overlaid onto the film. So they had original negatives they can go through and just put CGI on top. With Deep Space Nine and Voyager, the CGI shots were converted into video. So it's a much greater task to, to put those into Blu-ray because the film negatives don't even necessarily still exist anymore. Mm. So they'd be using CGI actors as well as CGI effects. Mm. And sadly, the next generation Blu-ray upgrades didn't sell all that well. By the time they got to season six and seven, they were selling less than 5,000 copies per season. Which is well, I think because most of us have got yeah most of us have got the DVD you know they bought the DVD or the, probably some of us have <laughs> bought VHS and DVD and I think just one more format was just you know too much yeah I get why it was now I mean in that case I've got the Blu-rays myself I did do the upgrade and the updated special effects are nice unlike some of the choices they made in the original series 
it is much more consistent with the view. You don't have people working from scripts. So the script called for a green flame. The prop guys did orange. So the characters now in the updated version are actually misidentifying the cover, the color of the thing they're looking at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, ouch. It, it is much more consistent. Haven't noticed any issues like that yeah. whatsoever in next gen, but it doesn't look like we're ever going to get Deep Space Nine or Voyager Blu-rays. In any event, they may go through that in much more detail mm. in the Deep Space Nine documentary, which has been funded by Indiegogo, but is not released at the time of this recording, although it is expected to be out by the time you hear this I'm podcast. Very much looking forward to that. Um, that looks that looks like a lot of fun. Um, it, it, what, yeah, it's called uh, What We Left Behind. So hopefully it'll be out by then, and, and maybe we'll have a discussion about it and and you know with the success of that maybe that you know maybe we can crowdfund a a good a good uh, DS9 Blu-ray um and it'll be interesting to see yeah at this point i would even be okay with an upconverted deep space 9 although i obviously prefer the film negatives whenever they have mm-hmm. which they they should have at least for the the non cgi shots if they recorded any on film but in the meantime i will settle for the the nice dvd sets that we've got because they are well done. I will give them that. The The only thing I find myself wishing for when I'm watching Star Trek on DVD is a play-all feature. Other than that, they've got it. But if that's, if you want to do the play-all thing, well, it's also on Netflix. I think U.S. Netflix has had all of Star Trek for a while, and it never went away. In Canada, we got it at the same time. It went away after a year. Came back for the 50th anniversary. I don't know if it's going to last more than a year this time. We've got four months left to find mm-hmm. out. The uh, yeah, Amazon Prime also has it. At least in the U.S., Amazon Prime has. If you have a Prime, it's uh, the the Star Trek series are on as well. Okay, Rob, do you want to speak for availability in the U.K. that you're aware of? Well, right now, <laughs> if you want to do a what date is this being recorded? Uh, yeah, we've we've got a, we've got um, DS9, Voyager. I think all four of them actually. Uh, and, no, actually, do you know what? I think every Star Trek is currently on Amazon. Sorry, um, Netflix UK. Um, but by the time this airs, who knows? They could pull it at any minute. I was happily watching Third Rock from the Sun, and then it disappeared. So, who knows? Yeah. Okay, this is why my DVD collection is so large. <laughs> but anyway, I'd like to thank you guys once again for joining me for this. It's always good fun to talk Star Trek, especially this Star Trek. Absolutely. Definitely. All right, do you want to remind people where they can find you? Okay, uh, you can find me uh, thevoicesinmyhead.com. Uh, hopefully, I'll have some uh, some new audio books out. Uh, doing uh, this podcast, I'm also doing. If you're uh, listening to the uh, Starship Sofa or uh, Farfetched Fables or Tales to Terrify, I'm doing some of those uh, off and on. Those are a load loads of fun. If you like uh, short story, sci-fi, fantasy, or horror. Okay. And Rob, anything you'd like to point people to? Yeah, um, well, as as a, a, a one-man geek show, um, all I really focus on a lot of my attention social media-wise is, is comic books. But if you're if you're listening and you're interested, then I can be found at Ref Gemlin on Twitter. That's R E F G E M L I N. Um, and as Blaine loves to point out, um, and I tend to keep under my hat, 
Uh, yeah, I'm one of the co-founders of the Horizon Labs community, which is it's it's really evolved into geekery at this point, but it's it's very predominantly comic books. But every DS9 fan is welcome there, believe me. Um, so yeah, hashtag Horizon Labs. It's it's very easy to find on Facebook and Twitter. All right. So for the listeners at home, join us again in two weeks when we cover the next best episode of the next show in line. Don't forget to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use. It really does help the shows get noticed. And finally, thank you for listening. It's a fake. <laughs> <laughs>